0: and we're live. Welcome to this week's episode of Safer Than Your Average and this week it's going to be an absolute cracker. We've got Eddie Woods, co-owner of a company called Cardale. If you just want to introduce yourself Eddie.
1: Hi, how's it going everyone? Uh, my name's Eddie and as Blair said um, I'm with a company called uh, Cardale and uh, what our mission is, is for the past Few years, it's all about us inspiring safe communities in the workplace and try to get people working well together. That's what it's all about for us, and um, we just get into companies and uh, help with communication stuff. So that's a of idea. But um, I know you want to meet the volunteers well, so you can be a bit more i I'm that and stuff. So let's go back. Do you want to start when I was a kid then?
0: Eh? Yep, definitely. That's the format of the podcast. Eddie will start right you. back. And- as you were a kid.
1: So there's uh, me, I've got two older sisters, so I was the youngest, Um, so obviously, uh, I was a a family's boy, right, so uh, if you ever meet me um, and work, uh, my family name is, everybody knows me, as My Eddie, because everywhere I go, that's all you hear my mother saying, there's My Eddie, oh, My Eddie can so that's the family joke. So if you meet me at a seminar, I'll just shout out, uh, you to wind me up. I hate that. <laughs> um, and um, we were, uh, initially as a kid, I was brought up in a place called uh, Omana Road in uh, Brinkton. And uh, my dad had a butcher shop there and it was between uh, two old streets, uh, Ruby Street and Curbairn Street, I think it was between. Um, of course we gas work. So I spent quite a lot, I, I was about eight years of age, went uh, to school there, That's where, uh, and then uh, one of uh, the things that scares me about that, and I don't know if this is why I ended up in safety, uh, but I remember uh, my sister getting up doing a double record bus and, out crossing, and uh, oh, that really sticks. Can, really sticks in my head that whole thing, you know what I mean? Um, uh, But the other thing about um, uh, the up Road as well was it it was a really, really busy place. And uh, we just stayed in this wee uh, pokey flat, and it had an outside toilet. And we had to share that with four other families, and there was no opening door. So you had to get in. You're sitting at night as a wane, you know, i I'm sorry, as a kid, for anybody that's not Scottish watching, but as night as a kid, you know, I was terrified and out there, you know. what I mean, there was there was no long toilets, and you just didn't your business. And, um, and I remember once the story, Uncle told me, I don't know if it was true, but he told me he was in there one night and uh, he was having a sit down because it was no with the door. Uh, The lassie next door opened the door to come down, he was sitting in the toilet, she said, oh I'm very sorry, or he says, oh I'm very sorry, and she says, oh I don't mind, he says, do you (laughs) want me to move out a bit? It was a dingy place with uh, back middens out mud pies, all the old fashioned Glasgow um, we moved to a place and um, it was uh, a back and front garden. So it was the first one that was in a place I don't know if you know was called Greenfield, which is a uh, in the East End of Glasgow. Yeah. I, I can see you nodding in there and what. Um so um and uh, and that's where I spent most of my time. As a kid, what I was known for was a uh, stripping down presents that people bought me. Like so like my ma would buy me a radio. And I would like to strip it all down, figure out how it worked, and then put it back together again. And uh, I'm still at that, a bit with things so, like forget something, I'm going to open it up. How's all that work? So I was brought up a typical Glasgow tenement, you know, um, uh, bins and stuff, out, like midges at the back, and uh, just a classic old scene, you know. It was. Uh, wasn't he a very nice looking place you know um, um, and anyway um, I was dead thin as a kid and um, uh, my mum got me uh, she would a pal his name was Joe Aitchison and he was a professional boxer had the boxing club um, so for a young age I was uh, in the boxing ring down there which um, I can still smell that yeah, see the smell of the place and every time I get here a place you smell it, you know what it's like, it just takes you straight all the way back to your childhood. Totally,
0: totally. I can remember it myself as a kid going to the boxing club and you can smell, smell it still, definitely.
1: I started, did you sit, I used to sit, see watching the main box with my uh, my chin on the, on the mat and you'd be bouncing up, it. oh, I loved it in there. I loved it. So anyway, then we moved, we moved, um, we moved to a place called uh, Greenfield, uh, which is in the, East End of Glasgow, and that's when I was there too, I was about uh, 17, so I like, uh, went to school through there, and um, uh, at the time when I stayed there, um, there was a lot of problems at the time with heroin in that area, you know, and it was something I'd never ventured into myself, uh, I was more like into music uh, than anything like that, you know, Um was always able hey, like, to Go to see, but I mean, I learned uh, for a young age that uh, I could use music to control my mood, you know. And uh, even now, as an adult, anytime I get the blues, uh, the first thing I know that like when I do the training, we talk about self-talk and positive thinking. But for me, I've got certain music and certain songs that I listen to with certain things connected to it, and um, and that gets my head in a, a different place. I've always utilized that for some reason. So there was a lot going on there at the time. Uh, I was heavily into football. Um, one of my uncles, um, he worked in the pharmacy department at the Victoria Infirmary in Glasgow. And um, uh, he never married or anything like that. Um, he had a really bad stammer, and It was actually him that got me mostly into what I'm into. Um, um, and uh, he started with local football teams. So that was another thing I was doing. Uh, I was playing football, and uh, and I got trialed uh, at London Road for SLT uh, Boys Club for three months when I was uh, fourteen. Uh, but I couldn't handle it. They were seen in, in, in the like dressing room. I mean, they were all at Man Mountain. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, there was guy, guys. Guys are fourteen. They were that hairy. They looked like Chewbacca. You know, I'm looking at them going, There's no way He's fourteen, but. Um, It it was just, at that level, I don't think I liked the amount of contact. And then then I came out and I played, uh, I went up and played at Postal YM for a wee while. And then I went, and then where else? uh, I was playing at Greenfield Boys Club. Uh, So, football, music, and sport was my thing. So, I sort of managed to keep away. Uh, for, for that uh, um, unfortunate side that um, our community um, was suffering at that time, um, and I did lose uh, a list of guys I went to school with. They uh, unfortunately lost their lives uh, through either using that or being involved in the trade of that. You know, so when I was always saying, "This is," I, I can I don't want to spend the rest of my life. Year old old, and that side of the city I, I mean I'll, I still love going over there, my mum's over there and one of my sisters over there and the people over there are amazing um, but it was just the environment at that time and I was starting to think ahead about what was going to do with my life, I was also thinking and I'm not, not being mean to be rude here but I was thinking I don't want to repeat this, I don't want to bring my own kids up and and have to be injected and maybe bad word to use there but injected into that environment so my my ambition was to get myself out of there and uh, uh, and that's what i did that's what i did Uh, initially i went down to uh, to london so i'd finished school i wanted to take some time out Uh, I knew I was going to have to refill my books if I was going to make a career. Uh, one of my uncles, uh, he's a pal, um, that worked up in Aberdeen, the oil and gas industry, and he used to come and tell all these stories, you know, and it was like a great adventure. And <laughs> I made my mind up pretty early on that I wanted to go there. And uh, and even when I was on uh, my journey to getting there, um, even when the uh, Piper alpha happened, that was not enough to that. Cause it was a few months after that, that I was starting to get ready to out there, and um, so that never really put me off either. Um, uh, but it was sad when I got out there. You know, there was uh, a lot of memorial stuff going on at the time as well, and and, uh, and that and and I was I was uh, in the oil and gas industry uh, uh, when uh, obviously just after it had happened, but. And there was a, a break, there was a sort of a window and I'll be honest with you, the companies I was working with at the time, I was working in the, the, the BP environment at the time and uh, even before the, the Cullen report came out, they were trying to do all they could uh, to put things right but I still think there was, had to be guidance. So when the Cullen report came out, that's uh, when I started getting uh, vocal about safety because, what, what I was finding was, um, see, you've done it yourself, right? You've sat in, in the with people. These are real people. They're like, these are family people, right? And, yeah. and you know, they're, they're out there, right? And they're braving everything, right? They're terrified sitting in other. So They're sitting in a, a firework in the middle of the ocean if something goes wrong. I mean, who would choose to do that, right? So these are, for me, I, I, I see people that go to work, right? I mean, even like uh, some of the clients of working with and the things that their staff do, these people are true heroes for their families. And uh, and that's what I was trying to keep in mind. Um, and that's when I decided, right, I'm putting my hand up here and, uh, and I'm going to be part of a change process. And uh, I wanted to have, it was a bit like... Um, After about a couple of years uh, and uh, I wanted a revolution to happen. And that's what it was. And I I wanted to, um, because I found there was a lot of bridges broken, right? And what I'm talking about is bridges between supervisors and employees, managers and supervisors, uh, and and, and the managers and the the corporate teams. And, And there was all these simple level bridges that could make things better. And that was that was uh, that's what I wanted to explore.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that that's what took me off in the journey. So initially, um, stuck my stuck my name down. Um, uh, I became uh, the Cullen report asked for us to have a uh, safety rep there. with you nine seven one rep probably? I think he's called uh, yeah, So, so I stuck my horn up for that. Did it uh, put me through All the, all the safety training. Everything I wanted on the way, uh, uh, although I forget I was there, um, but they took me on the way up to, uh, I was like the assessments and all sorts of things, audit arm, I was auditing and all sorts. But um, I was trying to, um, when I was going to there uh, auditing, I was trying to do it with a different approach. And, um, and because I knew these guys were out there for the families, right, everything time I approached me, that's what I always focus on. It's what were the people there for. Um, and then what happened was um, the BB machine started introducing me uh, to uh, behavioralists, psychologists, and all that sort of the stuff. Um, but prior to that, prior to that um, I, I took an interest in it as well. I mean, there's a, a book out there, if you want to get into this stuff, First book that got me going. Um, there's a subject there. It's an old old subject. And it's called uh, psycho cybernetics. And uh, it's a guy who wrote a, a book. A guy called. He's got a funny name, right? His name was. You'll never forget this name once it's there. His name was Norbert Wiener. <laughs> and um, and I, so I was already in that mindset of thinking as well. The other thing as well is, uh, as a kid, uh, my mum always taught me to, to look out for other people. And she did, my mum taught me a lot of valuable lessons. And it was all about, she always tried to, when I was dealing with other people, she was always teaching me how to put my my, my focus external and empathize with others. So I remember, like, see as a kid, I'd be like in the back garden, playing keeping up with the ball, or I'd be sitting listening to with my headphones on, my mum would come and tap me and take me to the window. She'd point, my baby an old lady struggling with her bags, to say, go and help her, right? And she'd do things like, um, uh, she'd go and get shopping for pensioners. My job was, or uh, uh, when my dad had the butcher shop, <laughs> she was always a hand, a, so, she, and I think I've taken a bit of that from her as well. You know, and so um, that was nice. Um, but anyway, I saw so the offshore industry. It was pretty much older. It was, I mean, when I first went out there,
0: it was still a bit wild westy. Eh?
1: Um,
0: when did you first start, Eddie? What kind, of, what kind of time was it? Just after Piper Alpha, you mentioned earlier. So what had
1: happened was uh, I went offshore as uh, a, radio, a radio operator and a um, uh, I was like a commons tech, so I was an electronics guy, right? Mm-hmm. So what had happened was um, they had old uh, means of communication out right? Uh, so what we were talking about, you know, was analog, and at that time, we never really had any laptops, right? So we were still like, we were getting like uh, fax pages and stuff like that still in. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. sure. um, and the, the main uh, form of uh, communication was satellite phones. You know, that, was, that used to be a lot. I used to be in the radio room at night because you could hear people using the sat phone and like, people talking to their, their wives and all that. You know what I mean? And like, sometimes you just had to put the music on. You and...
0: know
1: I mean? You're, you're sometimes away for a month and you're hearing somebody having a conversation in the phone with a woman, you've not seen a woman for a one time, you're like, don't need that. Aye, <laughs> <laughs> I, so, I, it was, I can't even remember the day, but I remember seeing the first time I went offshore. Um, first time I went offshore, right? I'd never ever flown before, right? Okay.
0: Before, right. Never commercially on an aeroplane, or an aeroplane. Yeah. I'd never flown at all. Yeah. Never been in a plane. What?
1: <laughs> right? So my first flight, right? I think it was a a S 61 or something like that. Can't mind. But it was a one of the old Rust buckets. <laughs> and uh, and um, look, we used to go to holiday in Soulcoats, right? So like it was with we this wee house, and it was in a place called Glebe Street in Soulcoats And it was like it was like a room and kitchen, right? But when we went there, it was like man, he would come with a man and their two wings and uh, he was absolutely right, So that was our holidays. Our mother cousins, they they were posher, right? They would get off the train, follow up the line, in us in dross and us and they brother and Like a <our> gaff. <laughs> Aye, but I spent a lot of my, my childhood <laughs> <laughs> staring out at Aaron. Um so where were we? I so I I'm sure I it was like uh we got out there the first that was the first time I'd ever flown. Uh, and um, the, the guy I was uh, flying flying way, guy I travelled up with um, uh, Alan he was very best, he was a lovely guy might see a guy playing the guitar absolutely there. that's my week sideline thing I do, play. I'm absolutely crap, but that's what I do at night. I like to the uh, uh, right wee volumes and put gins to them. That's so how I like to pass my time and walk the dog. So, um, but uh, first time flying, I remember I got in the helicopter. I couldn't believe how fast we we were up in the air, and uh, and I was flying out to a rig. It was it was cold at the time still there, it's called the Thistle Alpha, but they called it the Black Pig. Like, and they, they, they used to say, you know, eh, the pilots could fo- follow the oil leak for we ever been, they find it, they don't need radar and all that. And eh, <laughs> I remember we landed on this early day, and I'd never felt wind like that in my life. And it was it was so windy, right, that it was one man on, one man off, and they were using. The passenger body weight, I think, to keep us on deck. We had this rope, and you had to hold yourself on it. And um, but I still went back. I still went back because uh, when you get out there, uh, the ban there. See, so you, you can take a bit of banter, it's a great place to work. If you can't take it, don't go there. You will have a breakdown, you know what I mean? But then, when you first go out there, guys will say, older guys will say, at the end I just, I'm, I'm an observer of people. You know, I just love. You. And I was sitting a dear voice, with a young boy on there. Maybe the a Friday night. Why are you married, son? Why? She will make sure you phone after midnight, she'll be sitting there at nine o'clock. with her party gear on waiting for you to phone. As soon as you hang up, she's up to dancing, and she's cuddling somebody else tonight, and you. These boys would be getting up at one in the morning all paranoid or the No, and they tell these young boys, you have to go to bed at night with your sleep your survival suit oh, in case that no, no sleep with your life, Jacob on oh, and all that. Uh, the story, it was one story, one boy came on the rig. I wasn't there in the arm. But so um, the story was uh, they told him that he was going to get charged for all the food that he uh, They had to blow any money out of him. they, they a trap. <laughs> to give <them> a bill. <laughs> so it's fully all that, right? And uh, and obviously um it's the way people talk out there is you, know, you get guys for Britain and it's just oh, hundred miles an hour. So um I did enjoy that. I did enjoy that and I, I did enjoy the work out there. But then when I got sucked into the safety thing before I knew it, I was hanging about with all these behaviourists and stuff like that. So uh, BP then started uh, pushing me down that road and uh, they started getting me involved with uh, putting me on behavioural courses and all this stuff. And then they were getting me a, a lead-off. They'd launched this thing uh, for an ex-minor, a guy called uh, Dr. Bruce Daly. And they were and I was there for the initial launch of the advanced safety auditing. So we were going out and practicing it and then coming back and getting feedback and then we got Practice that, and then come out and give feedback, and then we try to make make a working model out of that. But the 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 main thing we were dealing with um, as there was obviously you had men right that um, it was mainly men, so no being sexist. In fact, it was it was uh, there was three lasses that I knew that had worked offshore. Right, one of them. she absolutely cracked Lassie, I still keep in touch with her now. Um uh, Lynn Jolly, uh, she was awesome, man. <laughs> um she was an electrician, right? But and she could well let anybody, I totally loved that lassie it, bits, you know what I mean? There was nothing she could need a her part. She comes from Huntley, her partner's absolutely brilliant. Uh the other Lassie I knew, her name was uh, Anne Smith. And she was a brilliant. She she was a head driller. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, she was brilliant and Quite awesome. Quite an
0: unusual job for a female as well, isn't it? Head driller.
1: But I tell you what, she worked she worked her way to that and yeah. uh, and she had great respect, right? Yeah. Her banter was absolutely top. Uh, the other lassie, uh, Lorraine was her name. I can't remember her second name. And, um, she was like an admin assistant she'd come out to do that because the safety people at that time uh, were getting so much paperwork that they couldn't actually visit the job so this was something that we started writing in reports feeding back the safety people are overloaded but they never safety people never get into this to, to, to uh, on it's, it's like when you look at policemen right it's like the, the average cop on the street is a brilliant, decent person, but if you look at the mechanism behind them, that's where usually all the problems are, right? And it, so the same thing was happening with these great safety guys out there that was all about they wanted to get out there, they were ex tradesmen, they wanted to mix with people, they wanted to pass advice and skills on. And the next thing, they'd all these people or this paperwork. So then we had to make a noise to get admin assistance assistant so we could put safety people
0: uh, back where they actually belong and uh, what, a that made. what a difference that made. And that's something that you've really focused on across your career isn't it, Eddie cutting through the red tape and really trying to get the people talking to the people that matter, getting your safety people out there, engaging with the frontline workforce. So it probably brings us up to talking about your career journey, where you've been through your career after that, kind of leading into where you are at the moment. Right. So, uh, so what, what I did
1: was, um, <clears throat> i had started, um, extensively studying stuff and I knew I needed more, uh, knowledge, um, And I knew that uh, what I was doing, what I was doing, I would never last in a big machine forever. What I was doing was new, and it was going to have to be sort of uh, put out there. So what I did was, um, uh, the initial thing was, um, I had started trying with doing, um, if you can imagine, rehearsal talks. Right. So, what I would be doing was, I would be picking a topic every month, right, and I, and I was absolutely... Te- I, I still don't like speaking in public with him, yep. right?
0: I Absolutely. You never tell. Absolutely. Never tell. I've seen you speak in full flow, Eddie, and you think, wow, I'd love to have that guy's confidence to stand up there and put that message across like that.
1: See, the last time I saw you over at Hamden, right, I was broken in the car park, right, me on. No, I'm not. Ask any of the any of the lads. And I keep saying to the guys at work with you know, look, once you stop losing that nervousness, you've lost the plot. I say the reason I feel like that is I'm fear case of disappointing people and I don't deliver it right. Right. Or you know, or I feel I'll get the message wrong and maybe will have a negative consequence of that. So that's where all the anxiety is based. Um it's all about trying to get it to get it right. So um, I, So what, what had happened was I was doing these sort of like, trying to put topics together and I was going up and I was giving myself like, rehearsals, right? So I'm going up and talking in front of a group. And, uh, and, and after each time I did it, now you've got to imagine here, right? I'm standing up in front of people for Glasgow, Newcastle, right? So everywhere they've built ships, Liverpool, Right, Southampton, you name it, right? All right, right hardy people, right? Um, But brilliant, brilliant. If they found a a chink in your armour, right, it was like a worm once they get in, it would just itch you forever, right? And um, so, what I I, I was making sure what I was doing was when I was up there, I was uh, reflecting back after each session. Right? So I'd be going, right, how did that work? How did that go? Right? And I started breaking it. I started trying to break it all down. So what I I, I began to realise was I needed more knowledge. Right? And what I had to understand deeper was how do people go through a thing called a process of change? And I started looking uh, everywhere for it. You know, from back in... uh, the cybernetic model, which I still use a bit, eh? Um, but I was looking at everything. Uh, I was looking at uh, behavioral psychology, right? Uh, which I don't rate that much. I don't rate it that much. And if you want to get into that, I'll rip that apart for you. That has got its place. That does have its place, right? Um, I looked at all the psychotherapy models as well and stuff like that. And then, uh, uh, I did some training. Uh, check, check them out on the internet. Right, uh, I did training with um, a guy called uh, Tom Silver, right, and um, and he was working with I think it was the Chinese police at the time as uh, uh, using uh, change techniques and interrogation models and all that. So this guy's like, if you can imagine, he's a bit like a mix between Paul McKenna and Darren Brand. <laughs> <laughs> And he shows you all this like a uh, sneaky stuff and sneaky language and, and there's a video of me and him somewhere on YouTube I think, right? Uh, now he's a big, scary looking guy, right? Uh, but he's, he's, his knowledge is good. He's know- I don't agree with everything he does. But his knowledge is good. He uses um, a lot of fear, right? To make people, follow his direction. Right? But interesting to watch. So for me, I wasn't wanting to be him or do what he can do. I was just want to go, like I was with a kid, he was my new toy and I wanted to take it apart and figure out how it worked. So I spent a bit of time with him and uh, another guy uh, who was the, the dean of the American Psychological Society, um, I spent some time with him as well, Werner, I used the same process. do so, hey, we have written your pen, but you're my new toy, and I'm going to put it apart, and I'm going to write so that, that, that's basically what I do. That's basically what I do. Um, and then eventually, um, uh, I was desperate trying to find good people to trained me. I did uh, some training where, uh, they were like California, uh, Californian hippies. Okay, so and then uh, a guy in California, they were little hippies, uh, his name was John Overduff, her name was Julie Silverthorne and they became a little toy as well, what are they doing, I became fascinated with them, but for me, again, it was all about trying to pick things apart, how does this work, you know, how does that really happen, how can you do that to a person, what's going on, right, And, and, oh man, it was reading out my ears. I mean, i I I'm into cycling as well, and I was looking out in the bike. Do you remember the old cassettes with it, <laughs> right? I, I uh, and I was audio o- audio recordings of them, everything. Track breaker on, right? And then I sort of said, right, I've got a model for them now. Um and I've sort of a funny that up um where um I went to do you know where Stockwell Hospital is in Glasgow? Yep. So I spent two years in, just under two years in there, and, uh, and that's when I started looking at, uh, I was up there studying in the, the, the clinical side uh, of therapy. And uh, I chose, the one I chose was actually uh, hypnotherapy because the training up there, they took me on a brand new track because they were looking at, uh, uh, not just be, behavioural psychology uh, as a sort of a, a model, but actually building a whole process, a whole change process behind that. So it just didn't become like a one hat. There was these events, right, and they were in Tokyo and they you the Abbey. Um, uh, we did physiology, everything. They put, uh, they, uh, Harley Street psychotherapists coming up. A number of them, they uh, um, did all the classics, uh, and then uh, uh, the final was uh, it was continual assessments. It was like every four weeks we're putting in five thousand more essays and all the classics, and we had to talk about um, uh, where all the connections were. And, um, and, uh, and the final exam, which I'm not really interested in. I had to learn to do it. Was the, it was the final exam? Was it was the application of something getting either for uh, nervousness, pain? Uh, it was all medical stuff, you know? And uh, so it would be you and a an actor as a patient, somebody acting as a patient, and then uh, two doctors sitting watching you,
0: uh-huh. and and you. Yeah. That's really interesting, and it seems like after that you started to really move towards joining both the clinical side of things and the health and safety side of things together and what you do. Aye, Aye.
1: so that's when I I started. uh, um, I knew early on, right, that with these great people, I sat with every day in the D Hot. I mean, I'm talking, Blair, I mean, I'm not sure, I'm going to be straight with you, right? I mean, most people after the Piper Alpha, most people would have thought that most of these men would have thought the rig was the most dangerous place for them. It was actually the flying through the, the, the thunderstorms and
0: and they used to say that in the offshore industry, didn't they? If you can get to the platform, you're safe. And even some uh, survive Piper Alpha thought they were safe on the platform because they'd made the flight out there.
1: And, and so there is there is a lot of anxiety involved uh, going out there and, and and it's the same as well like I mean I was working in some of the big construction jobs in London as well and the same there the people there even in some of the big jobs in Glasgow you know in rains, wind, hail or snow these men and women are showing up every day and they're knocking at home for the families and and I did see and I, I, I don't want to be critical right but just like just look at police officers again, right? You get different types of police, and you get different types of safety people, and different types of managers. And and what I started noticing early on, right, was uh, people always say to me, well, how is it when you came, like some companies will give me their, their worst site, they'll say, right, this is my worst site, I want you to turn that around in three months, right? And when I turn that around, they say, what is it you've done? And all I really do is work with people, kind of each other, right? And I try to use some of these theories to actually say, people aren't meaning to hate us to themselves. And and they're not here for the company. You're framing everything wrong. So then I take them into what's called reframing, language shifting, and then this process of change, and connect them together. But I think, see safety wasn't out there, Blair, I think uh, just we, the, the way my mum brought me up, I, I was going down this road anyway. If it wasn't safety, it would have been something else. Um, and human beings, for me, I love them. I, absolutely, I'm human beings. Sometimes, like, um, I, human beings bring me tears, right? And not just tears of sadness, sometimes great tears of joy. They're wonderful, and if you can access them the right way, right, and try to move away from this this police enforcer punisher. I've got a badge. I'm above you. You know. Remember that old John, that was it the two Ronnies. I'm above, or was it John Cleese? I'm above him. And it's and that's what really I'm I'm trying to break down. And so I'm really going in. Is I'm not doing anything wonderful. Right, I'm just going in and introducing people to reframing language, a communication strategy, and then the process of change And the importance of keeping something up, <laughs> will eventually normal. And that is, that's no magic, what i do, doing, right? Uh, the, the thing about um, the, uh, the training side there on the floor, that's a, that's a different side there, you know I mean? That's just a, a bit of front end, there's a lot of other things. That we work on in the background. Um, but the training side there, the, the key to that, right, is you've got to get it into your head. Uh, the key to it is it's not just training, it's got to be entertaining training, right? And, and, and people have got to find themselves within it. I guarantee you, when you've been at some of our sessions, you, you go, shit, I do that? Oh, that's me as well. Right. And that, this is what's called association, right? And if you look at the, the process of change, if you want somebody to go through a change, right, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to substitute them into your story. Right. They've yeah. so got to place themselves into that story. So when I say like things like, you know, when you're driving along the road in your car, you're in your car, right? So that's substitution. Right? And then what I'm doing is I've got you in the car, right? I'm building a bridge, and when I've got you nodding, I do a thing called transference. So I do you assimilate, so I then take you in. And it's just a bit like, you know, when you're hammering a nail, right? and I'm always bridging the, the stories together. And it sort of it takes the audience on a wee journey. And it's a change for them for something up the, the front going, you're doing this for the business, here's all the facts. You know, I just, just going. With, here's another angle. And uh, for me, it's always been about communities, togetherness. That, that's what that message is all about. And, and I'm glad, you know what, what I want to say people, and I'm very thankful to see a lot of people, and I also went to the Western Scotland branch, because when I first started doing this stuff, you were there, you guys were right at the beginning with me, right? And when I first threw it on the table, I took it off the rigs and I went and says, I'm going to take this off of here, and, and put it on the table on shore. And uh, and when I'd done that, the West of Scotland branch at Iyosh, I was going to other places, Blair, and they were all going like, you I, I feel not, son, you try trying to run a business here. But when I came into that branch, they were like, that's different. And it was actually the West of Scotland branch at Iosh.
0: Look, i have got so many people. See, everything. That's how, I mean, you know, go to Hampton for free. Oh, yeah, and oh. brands really appreciate it as well, Eddie. They really do. The uh, that run for them are fantastic. Mm. George
1: is, man, I just wish I could make a hundred of him. He's just such a, a fair guy. I, I feel a lot for George, He's a lovely person.
0: And you guys, you that. I've got a, a lot to be grateful for, and, uh, Time. So, absolutely interesting, Eddie. Can you now talk us through a wee bit more about what you do at Calvdale, what services you offer, how you really put that message out there and where you've worked in the, the past and where you're working in the future? Well, some of the clients we work with, um, we it's a bit
1: like, you know, if you get some private therapy work done, some places we work for don't like us talking about it. So we do have contractual agreements where there's uh, no conversation. Uh, but the other thing is, a business what you will know about us is we don't advertise, right? All through what the mouth isn't it? And um, we get people that are serious to come and find us rather than go and play at this, you know. And I, I mean, I, we got a call. Uh, it was about four or five months, four or five months ago, it was and then um, it was a contract company that uh, worked for one of our larger clients and I'm always straight right and I says look I just want to be straight with you look we are really serious about what we do Um, we're so into uh, the human being side of thing and development side so if you're calling me up to say you're doing this so you can retain a contract I'm not going to do it right you." Right, and if you're got, and we, and I say, so we don't to work with you if you're going to go for this, and eventually they persuaded us, and uh, and we did the leap. But we don't work with everybody. Sometimes uh, we we have to go to meetings. Uh, we don't like taking money off of people. And we, I always say to our guys, even the guys who are doing, you know, the first sit down, I'm saying, look, if these people aren't ready for this, you have to let them know. So sometimes our guys will sit with you and just say, look, you'll need a safety professional in. Uh, before we could go any further, or doo-doo-doo. so, and that happens quite frequently. Uh, where we have to say, it, but it's, it's not that we're not saying we're too far out there for you. We're not saying that. We're not saying that well, you're not ready for us. But you need certain building blocks before, us, and that's what I'm really trying to say here. So I'm not being big-headed, and so you I mean we are not. Um, it's it's as if, if you can imagine, like a safety was a cake. Right, and um, so we we're just a wee bit uh, a, wee extra, a wee thin layer on top. But everything else is, is your systems, your safety people, you know, your management structure. So what we're doing is a wee a wee thin layer that can maybe just add that wee extra bit. So you know, it's not the services we offer is all sorts, all sorts. I mean, I've sometimes um it's sales teams that want to know how it works. Uh, But I'm very careful with who I work with Um, sales-wise. A while back, a few years ago, I did get asked to go over to a place in Spain and and train some salespeople for approaching people in the streets and I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. So, uh, so we do that, we do strategy work with people, we make a lot of videos um, for companies as well. What we really want to go on and is, is just be um, a good, decent uh, assistant to people that, that are really serious about getting people up the road, you know, um, and that's not just a, the sort of a physical side there. Yeah. You know, the physical side is usually an overspill of a mental breakdown, and wrong, you know, or a bad relationship or something going on between teams or communication. So we're not just trying looking look at the physical side, we're people, we're also. You know, sometimes I get the managers, uh, I've not had to do it for a while, but the way they approach a team member, and sometimes when I walk away with a manager, I have to say to them, uh, look, see, when you're with me, do ever, ever speak to anybody like that when I'm standing beside you because they think I'm just like you and I'm not.
0: Yeah, totally. I get where you're coming
1: from on that one. So let's go over and try that again with somebody else, right? And so there is a lot of people out there, and I can understand uh, they're under a lot of pressure, and sometimes they don't get time to stand there for like half an hour, like maybe I have, but still sometimes like snapping fingers and all that, and somebody the body language and voice tone it's used, it's just not, it's just not there. And the other thing is what a lot of marriages don't realize is human beings were reciprocal. So this is why we're fascinated with justice. And what I mean with reciprocal, reciprocity, payback. So this is why we've got a justice system, because people love payback. We had to invent that or people were just killing everybody. But the same thing is payback's everywhere. And as a leader, you have to realize that. And so for instance, what I mean by reciprocity, is I'm sure you've done it. You're walking down the street with your partner, and you'll say, I wish they'd stop buying rich Christmas present so we can, can stop buying nails." Because when somebody gives you, you are obliged to give back. It's a psychological process, right? And if you want to read more about this, it's called the uh, reciprocity, they call it. Uh, so, whether if, if I'm nice to you, you'll be compelled to pay that back to me, right? And if I'm shit to you, you'll be compelled shit back and in the sort of a way I explained that to you is member during the presentation talked about the scales of justice in the head yeah the manager approaches somebody says something rude to them knocks the person off so this scale is the outside world this scale is your internal world so the manager comes up shouts at you knocks you off a of balance so you've got to pay that back so you'll start saying to yourself right i'm going to be awkward at all the meetings and then you maybe turn around and say you know uh and I'm going to make his life hell, and I'm going to work slower for the next four months. And Once you get that evenness back, justice has been served. And this is what you'll find a lot of managers don't realize is sometimes with that approach, they can be getting paid back three months later for that, and they don't know why, because sometimes people will send their payback, and some like it, some like their payback slow and painful.
0: Yeah, it goes back to that old, uh, best dish is a best dish, sir, uh, cold. I know. And and it's, it's, well, yeah, it's a best dish. Yeah. Even if uh, uh, you look at
1: reciprocity, people are using it on you everywhere, right? For instance, like, uh, watch next time you get into a restaurant, right? Why did they bring you a sweetie? Right? And what they found in a study, check it out, Stanford University, right? If you're sitting having a meal with your missus, Right? and at the end of the meal, they just come and give you the bill, right? Average tip. i give you a sweetie, it goes up, right? Watch this, this makes it go through the roof, the tap. If I come over to the table, this all payback, reciprocity, if I come over to the table, and I put a sweetie down for you and your wife, right? And then I turn to walk away, but just as I go to step away, I turn back, and I come to the table and I say this, do you know what? used to, I'll be my favorite customers and I, you can have an extra sweetie each, the tip goes through the roof. And what you're saying is, as I'm selling you penny sweeties for five pound tips, right? So reciprocity is everywhere. And if and if you can understand that, then if you want positive payback in the future, you have to take the time inject it in, in the now. And this is what's missing just now, a lot, a lot of what people, stress to them up there, they're running in very low margins, very tight projects, everything's about the shareholder, and
0: that has to change, that has to change. You mentioned in a conversation that we had a couple of days ago, Eddie, about we've done the safety triangle, we now need to look at the safety circle, can you tell us about a bit of detail on that?
1: Right, so well, if you look at any social structure, if you go back in, in time, there's always this triangular, like even for kings and queens, you go kings. Uh, well, what they used to say was um, uh, it, it was the medicine men like, that were above the kings. A bit like you now, where the scientists are telling the politicians what to do. So the medicine men are above the kings, but are always been doing this a sort of a, a triangle shape. So, what happened, and I'm not saying this is. Uh, this is uh, my philosophy and, 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 the, and the path that I follow, but um, in 1972, there was a guy called uh, Lord Robins, and he wrote a thing called the uh, Robins Report, and what that was about was, um, it was about apathy in the workplace towards health and safety, and um, and how most of the responsibility was getting put on to the government. So this was the doorway for... Uh, the health and safety work at now this had to be introduced because all over the country there was all sorts of things happening. And then we went through, you remember the decades of disaster. So what we had was we had problems in oil, with oil rigs blowing up, with train stations going in fire. You know, with the coal mines collap, with all sorts going on. And uh, so the government knew the culturally. There was a problem across the country. So the health and safety work had to cover these many, many industries. The only thing though, is when you take that approach, a cultural approach, you have to follow the hierarchical model, right, where it's all about rules and regulations and punishment. And that's really, and that was the thing that got me. See, the safety, the safety professionals, he's kept saying, can he's designed something for me to do with behavioural safety. This is, you've already got it. It's called the Health and Safety Work right? So somebody behaves a certain way, there's a consequence, right? <laughs> the only bit it's missing is what happens when somebody's brilliant. That's their job, innit? Right? So there we go. So making mistakes. Right. So it sort of all get put on the negative end. So to do that across the country, they had to do that culturally, right? But what you had in the workplaces a lot of the times was you already had pretty strong-knit communities at the times because you had brothers, sisters, and there was a lot of community working going on. You know, or all, all my family, they all either work in that factory or somebody else's family would all work in that factory. So there was that good uh, community spirit there but for the cultural model we work, that had to go. But now, now it's ready to return, because they now know that that is the final hurdle to getting people all in to that magic zero. And it's about doing it for each other now, and not for businesses, not for shareholders, right? And it's all about giving people, and this is, I mean, one of my clients, I don't want to mention it, right? But uh, they just made a, a complete deadline for the people on it, it and it's uh, brilliant And their statement is, if it's not safe, we're not doing it? And, and that is a great community statement, that if, if it's not safe, and, and uh, but when I talk to the workers, especially in Scotland, they're going to frame it in their language, and it's like, see, see, if it's not safe, it's not happening, that does not happen here, right? But the, the trouble is, is We've still got a lot of this cultural baggage and all these people that are policemen and force of punishers that are so indoctrinated in that. I'll take time, Blair, for that transition. But i tell you what, I mean, I do a lot of seminars uh, for a lot of safety people, and I've got a lot of respect There's a lot of great people coming through.
0: And believe me, the revolution is closer. It's closer. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's great, Eddie. Um, If we just move on now, what advice or guidance would you give to someone starting out in health and safety today? I probably know where you're going to go with this one because we just spoke about it a little bit. Um, Getting away from the enforcer and moving towards more of a community-based approach. The
1: way I'm trying to get the safety people, I'm I'm working way to look at this. Rules are important. Right. So, um, if if as a human being, right, if you look at emotions and you draw, you draw a line, right. At one stage, uh, uh, you you've got love, and, and the other side, you've got fear, right. Now, we fear and love, right. Uh, with both of these, you can be your most irrational states, right. So, you know, I mean, you can love somebody, but after you kill them. Right? Uh, and everybody can be telling you you're so in love and you're blinded with love and stuff like that. And what, what is, is every other emotion we've got actually fits somewhere along that scale. right? Uh, what I would be suggesting uh, to anybody who's coming forward as a safety person, right, is you can't go out there and be positive about everything. The world isn't like that. Right? And there is a lot of people out there trying to train you the world of positivity. But here's the thing, see if you're overly positive and, and, and you don't quite make it, you can't sustain it, you start feeling like a failure. And most people can't sustain positivity all the time. You know, try it, put it into your diary, and I guarantee you for an hour, somebody or something will be pissing you off. Right? So you have to realize what I'd say to anybody is there's this scheme between love and fear. Now, if you, are consistently caught in the, are catching people in the, in the fear scale all the time. You're stuck there. Then that's not good for you, or the, or the relationship, or the environment, or people's anxiety levels. So people's wellbeing. Sometimes you needed, sometimes you do need consequences. Because sometimes if I was late for work, I might do that extra twenty mile an hour if there was no consequence there. So yes, the consequences are important. But it's how you communicate that and making sure you don't get stuck totally in fear and totally in love. You have to, as a person, let yourself delight you through that to meet the situation. And that way, I think, as you move on in life, you know, it's it's better for yourself, but it's going to be better for the community if you're trying a safe working community if that's what you're trying to But also as once you can Make that then mood is transferable, then people start taking that home. And then when people start enjoying the work life, they start enjoying the work life uh, the home life, then people that enjoy the home life make better partners and better mums and better dads. And then the next society growing up actually grows with the skills. So my message to anybody that's starting out in safety, yes, the rules are important. Yeah. You have to realise here that you're dealing with human beings, things of emotion, right? and we can't have them, that negative emotion being substituted into them in the workplace and destroying them and then transferred it to the family. So my message would be, look, when you going out there, yeah, right? you will be seen as a policeman, but there's two types of bolus, make sure you're the good type. Sure, sure.
0: Thanks for that, Eddie. Now, I'm going to ask you another question here and this is normally the, the one that people find tough. You've had many challenges across your career. What's been the biggest single challenge you've been faced with in your career? Hmm.
1: I was on a drilling job, right? I don't want to tell you who, far or whereabouts it was. Uh, I was, there was, on this job, everybody else was contractors, right? And uh, on drilling jobs you get what's called the company man, the company man, right? So I was the company man, right? And the other guy that was the company man, I'm flying under his wing, right? And this guy, he's like, you can imagine a mouse, right? He only sees the cheese, he can't see the trap, that sort of a person. So it's just, he just sees the goal. Right? So obviously you're into people as well. So you know when you are collaborating with people, the first thing you've got to work out is who you're playing with. Right? So um, I sat with him for a couple of hours and uh, just asking questions and I realized it was this type of person. Um, and what had happened was, um, we pulled this um, a, a drill rig up beside this uh, platform we were, um, going to drill a new packer, put a new packer unit in one of the whales. and uh, so anyway, one of the one of the cranes goes down, right? So this platform's got two cranes like, like this, and we've got this other uh, rig with a single crane on it. We needed that piece of equipment at the far crane, right? But the middle crane was broke, mm-hmm. and. It was if this job get delayed overnight, it was millions, and millions and millions of pounds. Okay. And uh, so, on the paperwork, right, when you're the company man, right, on the permit system, you uh, either command uh, the area authority, or one of the area authorities, or you can command as the affected party. So it needs, needs my mm-hmm. signature and his signature before the box are made, right? He did a job plan for it, right? And this was his job. Now this was a long time ago, right? So the job plan was, I said, created. He was going to get this crane here, right? We were going to run the wire, right, across the deck this was going to, uh, this crane was going to lift the equipment on when they were needed and then they were going to put scaffold poles underneath the containers and drag them across the deck. And so one guy did it to grab the pole, right? And um, I just, um, i just been on like a, a subsea a production course and uh, so I've got, I'm envisioning in my head all these like, uh, whales below us that are alive, and if containers start falling out the side, and then I'm thinking, what? And then I'm thinking about people's fingers and all sorts of. So I refused to sign that, right? Uh, and uh, <clears throat> there was a permit meeting that night, and oh, it was, a, I mean, it was a, a young guy, and I've got saliva in my face. Guys screaming. I've been doing this for so many years, you know, and I had to say, look, I'm, I'm sorry about that, but uh, I don't want to be phoning anybody's family up, you know, and saying, look, we thought it was all right, because Tam had to years be behind him. Uh, I said, so that's not going to happen. We'll come up with another plan and we'll do it. But, uh, that was the first time, right, and I'm not a religious person, right? But I was worried that night, See why? and they came to my room and woke me up in the middle of the night trying to get the up. That's how much money it was costing. And that was the first time that I'd ever knelt at the side of your bed. And I was actually praying for the night shifter. In case they sneakily done it when I was sleeping. And I was praying, please. I'm <laughs> not that into God. I was just so scared. I was, please, God, please, please make everybody okay. Uh, the next morning, uh, the asset managers uh, uh, on the phone, and this guy started shouting his mouth after trying to get me sacked. And the asset manager just turned around and says, That's why I put Eddie out there, because I knew he would stoke stuff like that. He says, Well done, Woodsy, good job. Yeah. And that was the first. And the guy who did that. i um, still A great asset manager, and to get that—that that was to get that support—instantly uh, caused a change doing that job, and we ran that whole job. A uh, first drilling job, totally instant, great. But because the men knew we were there, for them, for them. and that—that that was probably the most horrifying. Uh, it was very. I felt very threatened.
0: It can be really difficult being in that situation that you're the one that needs to make the call yeah. and say, No, we're not doing this. The uh, consequences outweigh the risk. Uh, or the uh, reward, sorry. The consequences outweigh the reward. I uh, saw, so, but uh, that that's stopping me, that story. Um,
1: and then I got I actually got another uh, uh, drilling job off the back of that. You know, they asked me, this is why I come back to you. and I was like hey, give me the same guys.
0: And we'll do it again. Uh, Bye. Um, So that's uh, that's really good, Eddie. I've done a lot in the past with you. We've worked together uh, over a few companies now. How do people get in touch with you if they want to get involved and get Cardale in to have a look at what they're doing and work with yourself?
1: Well, initially what I would say to anybody, if you go on to your website, it's just uh, carddale.com. We've got a section in there before you phone us up. Uh, there's free videos on the site, and you can go there, and, you can, and some of them, are you could use them for like a small training session and toolbox talk. What we usually suggest to people is, look, before you get us in, look at the videos, show your people them and make sure your people are actually wanting to work with us. Because if they don't, you're going to waste your money, and that money could be getting used, you know, for other things, you know, for for the staff. So. What I would suggest is if anybody wants to get in touch, just jump on the website, have a look at the videos if you like them and you want to talk to us, drop us a line and then I'll give us a call and we'll have a meet. That's, that's how we usually do it. You know? uh, sometimes calls come through and we always say, go look at the videos first, make sure. you know, Because uh, it, it does as well, um, and we some clients as well, we're starting to do this stuff over the internet with them too. And um, and we're starting to do quite a wee bit of video production work for people as well. So which is Very
0: important the current climate, isn't it? With COVID-19 rumbling on in the background and people still being at home, working from home a lot to be able to carry out these kind of online meetings and be able to support their clients that way. I know, I know. But
1: it's, um, it's a difficult time, and um, uh, I do feel for. Um, anybody just now uh, even even having to go to work just now it must be very very worrying for people thinking well something here's got it can i take it so the amount of anxiety that must be there is unbelievable and so i'm at home myself just now so i've not really been out doing any work Uh, so i've not felt that type of tension, but i I mean, everybody that's going to work for me is a hero. They're all shouting just about the NHS, but you've got to think about these people that are keeping all the lights on. You know, without them, the hospitals would be shut down. Then you've got to think about the oil workers uh, supplying the power stations for the gas. And so there is a lot of people out there that's not getting show um that are actually, uh, but without them, uh, the NHS wouldn't be able to function, but they're showing up every day, you know, and I know they'll have that fear. And even you know, as a citizen, I'm, I'm totally grateful, totally grateful for what they're doing. So, but I'm not feeling that anxiety. I'm actually at home. So, but I do feel, I feel for a good day
0: Okay, Eddie, thanks very much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And on behalf of the Irish West of Scotland branch and on behalf of myself, thanks very much for giving up your time and getting involved.
1: Okay, and uh, again, I'll IOSH West Scotland branch everything. Uh, so uh, anything you guys are doing, I'll always be there because you're always there for me, and I'm forever grateful.